Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to a very special episode of The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. And as we did in 2018, we had a chance to sit down with several guests at our international seminar here in Houston, Texas. And this year is no different. Um, We've decided to ask certain individuals to join the podcast. And um, as we always do, uh, focus on very different topics. Somebody who has definitely come up in conversation several times has been Mr. Doug Hoey, CEO of NCPA, which is the National Community Pharmacists Association. So Doug, welcome to the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thank you. This is going to be um, really, really cool to have you here in person. I've, I've heard the name for, for several years, never had the chance to meet you face to face. Sebastian, welcome as well. Uh, this is going to be a fun podcast because we have an opportunity to talk to someone who is helping shape where pharmacy is going. So this is great. Yeah, Doug, we're gonna get into your bio. Um, There's always, in my opinion, been this uh, symbiotic partnership between PCCA and NCPA because of the fact that we both have close, close ties to community pharmacies. Uh, But a bit more about you, your role at NCPA, and uh, your overall responsibilities for the organization. Sure, I'm the, the CEO. I've been the CEO for the last uh, eight and a half years at NCPA. Uh, NCPA represents independent community pharmacists, the non-publicly traded pharmacies in the United States. We're the voice of community pharmacy, and um, we represent pharmacies federally. We are in the state from an advocacy standpoint, and we also uh, try to put those voices together. 23,000 pharmacies, $85 billion industry, but it can be like herding cats. So we try to unify that voice into one, one loud voice is what we do at NCPA. Awesome. So you mentioned that you, uh, you've been serving for eight and a half years as CEO. You've been with the organization for quite some time. I have. I, you know, I came to NCPA after practicing for about five years. I'm licensed in Oklahoma, Texas, and Virginia, and was licensed for a while in Colorado as well. And uh, practiced for about five years, mostly in independent pharmacies, Uh, independent pharmacies that also had long-term care. We started a home infusion business in one. We had durable medical equipment, hospice contract, you know, just really a lot of the different um, niches that pharmacies did, and also compounding uh, in in one of the pharmacies that I worked at. My dad is a pharmacist, owned a pharmacy, so part of my time working was um, with him and, uh, and the pharmacist that he employed. Part of it was working for other folks as well. And then NCPA, NCPA for the last uh, 20 plus years in various roles, um, was our first COO and then became CEO eight and a half years ago. Awesome. So, so you said that you practiced for about five years. So what brought you over to NCPA? You know, uh, I guess serendipity. Um, I really had no ambition of Uh, working in an office environment. I had no clue about working in an office environment, which I think actually helped me um, my first several years because I didn't know the questions I was asking or the things I was doing were probably not appropriate for an office environment. You know, things like, you know, going through the chain of command or, you know, you're not supposed to ask that question to a vice president. I didn't know. I just did it. (laughs) It seemed like the question to ask. but uh, I really, I applied for the job. They wanted someone who was a pharmacist, who had an MBA, who liked to write, and I'd gone to uh, college on a journalism scholarship. So I thought, well, that sounds like me. 
I'm 20-something. I want to travel a little bit before I settle down. We'll give this a shot. And to my surprise, they hired me. And the rest so far has been history. So you've been there now for 20 years. And so now you've seen a real change. And uh, you're kind of having an opportunity to be a voice and, and lead a little bit of the change. So as the CEO, um, currently, what is your, like you've seen the change, where are we sitting with respect to our relationship with community pharmacy and the current government that, and your sort of uh, voice? What are, what are the hot topics that we're discussing at this point? Well, the hot topic is always reimbursement. Something to do with reimbursement. You can, you can pick whichever flavor, but for those 20 years, it's something to do with reimbursement. Um, and actually, if you look at it, even at other healthcare providers, even besides pharmacists, it's usually about reimbursement. Um, the most, the hottest issue right now on the reimbursement side is our pharmacy DIRs, far and away. And maybe the hottest issue that I've seen in my 20 plus years at NCPA. I mean, I think even hotter than the restricted networks, the, um, the max going up, uh, I'm sorry, the generic pricing going up, uh, you know, 10,000% overnight, inadequate max. Um, pharmacy DRs are right up there with those, if not, if not even above. So dig in a little bit and explain to explain to everyone where where you're saying it's like the hot topic and, and sort of some of the details that that we're experiencing that you that you see as push pull and and we need to we need to become get to quickly to to help pharmacies. Yeah. So just a little bit of background. Most folks, I'm sure, <laughs> know about pharmacy DIRs, but just maybe a little bit of context to to answer that question. So they came about about seven years ago, around 2012, 2013. They started out fairly small, but even then we saw them coming. We didn't like them. We, we didn't guess they were going to be as bad as they are in 2012, 2013, but we were going to the regulatory body, CMS, saying, uh-uh, these are not, these retroactive fees are not what Congress intended. Uh, when the Medicare Modernization Act passed in the early, or in the mid-2000s, this was not part of what Congress had written. This, this was for pharma. DIR was for pharma rebates. <clears throat> it was not for pharmacies. So we started there. We started, you know, objecting to, um, to CMS. And over time, unfortunately, those pharmacy DIRs have grown. Uh, CMS has sort of waved a white flag and said they don't have authority because it gets into the contracting process, which we disagree with. We think they do have the authority. Um, and in fact, uh, we were able to encourage CMS to issue a, a rule that would have done away effectively with pharmacy DIR. Uh, that rule would have become final in May of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the White House uh, nixed it. Um, some, some of the um, uh, folks responsible for the budget uh, said, uh, we're gonna kill this, and, the, and they did. And now we're pursuing a legislative path. And if that doesn't work, then we'll go to plan C. But we are not going to stop until pharmacy DIRs are stopped. Even when pharmacy DIRs are stopped, it's not going to make reimbursement. I mean, the reimbursement pressures are still going to be there. Reimbursement mm-hmm. pressures are, are a bit of a constant um, in, in our profession. And we, we were discussing this just off uh, uh, prior to the podcast. Whereas that we can see reimbursements within compounding pharmacy is a little bit different because it's it's a unique product, and so it, I know that you you had a couple of comments there, which might be 
positive news for our listeners versus just like, oh no, there's doom and gloom. Like just if, if you care to elaborate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is one thing about the, the reimbursement pressures. I mean, so the reimbursement pressures have, have, have been there at least for the 20 years that I've been at NCPA. And frankly, when I practiced, we felt like we weren't getting paid enough uh, for yeah. what we did. And despite that, there are still 20,000 plus uh, independently owned pharmacies in the United States. Uh, compounding provides uh, a, a very vital um, niche isn't even niche doesn't do it justice. It's a vital business line for uh, community pharmacies, mm -hmm. and you know that's gone undergone a lot of changes over the last four or five years as far as reimbursement there. But there's a fundamental necessity of compounded drugs that's never going to go away. That ability to customize a medication for a patient is never going to go away, and I think it's only going to increase as technology is increasing, and it enables us as healthcare providers to be able to provide precise medicines for a patient, even more precise than we've ever dreamed about. So how are we going to, how are those, where are those precise medications gonna come from? Who better than a compounding pharmacist? Yeah, your, your local community pharmacy that has actually got a relationship with the patient able to take the information that they're being given and then customize it specific to the patient. That's right, because there will be some kind of genetic test that will customize the product. And there will be folks who will try to put that on an assembly line. They'll say, well, if you have this DNA code, or you know, then, then you get this drug. That's still not going to tell the whole story, though. That will tell you some of the, you know, you're um, more inclined if you have this genome, you're less inclined if you have this. But it's still not going to tell the whole story about the patient, which you need eyeball to eyeball. You need to, be, to understand what's going on in their world to be able to, pr to prepare a medication that is precise, not only for their condition, but for their life, for, for the different um, living situations they may have. And so that only kind of, it's, you, assembly line healthcare doesn't work for most folks. So that's the beauty of compounding medication. It's the opposite of assembly line healthcare. Now, to those people who are listening, aren't you glad that this is a person who's, who's being our voice in Washington? Because you're actually speaking to a lot of community pharmacists who are saying, oh, this is, a, this, yeah, you're speaking my language because assembly line medication has never worked. Assembly line healthcare can't work um, with this, in the current technological as well as information age. Because as you said, pharmacogenomics is becoming bigger. Um, you mentioned that it's going to be a little bit longer in coming, but we are seeing it in, in pockets where they're doing trial uh, efforts, especially in oncology system, um, where they're looking at cancer cell lines, and then we're doing customized medication to those specific cancer cell lines for specific patients. Like it, it, It's there. The technology is there, but I think it's going to be a slightly slower uptake. As you, as you were mentioning. Yeah, anything with healthcare takes longer than we want it to. And yeah. so there's all these futurists that have these predictions of healthcare and it's gonna be this and that. And they're probably gonna be right at some point. I mean, if, if, if they live long enough, they'll be able to see what they predicted. But whatever they predict, it's probably gonna take twice as long. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And I will say with pharmacogenomics, pharmacy has the chance and should own pharmacogenomics. But <laughs> if, yep. if we don't, there are many folks out there who are more than happy to take it from us. Uh, so, and, and it's not, right now pharmacogenomics doesn't necessarily fit into the current healthcare system, which is 
doesn't mean it's not right though. It is the right thing to do as far as, again, being able to treat a patient's condition with precise medication uh, that's going to be most effective for them, have the least amount of side effects, and ultimately be most cost effective. But again, if, if we don't embrace it, then someone else will. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we've seen this multiple times where given the opportunity as pharmacists, it's, we don't want to give it away. We don't want to let it slip because uh, number one, revenue stream. Number two, involvement in the community and having a voice as well as finally uh, being the, the highest level of appropriateness to that drug delivery. Like that, that, that's the key is if we let it go, it, it's going to turn into a poor execution of need for our patients. And it, we, like I see it, I, I know where you're going. Yeah, pharmacogenomics is, um, you know, data is currency. Data, mm -hmm. is, it's not the new currency, but it's definitely currency. And pharmacogenomic is, is data. And so with data, we can be, again, precise. We can do things with information that we, and so we don't have to waste time and, and on a bunch of treatments that aren't going to work because pharmacogenomics say they're not going to work. But pharmacy's not always done a great job um, preserving our data. And there's always all kinds of fingers in the pie trying to grab our data and take it for themselves. And so pharmacogenomics is a new data creation and we should learn from lessons in the past where folks have um, taken our data or we've given it to them and uh, make sure they don't get it this time. Mm -hmm. That's, it, it's, it's a fantastic insight that you're, you're already thinking three to four steps ahead because like you said, it might be a few years coming but we have to be prepared and we have to have uh, sort of legislation in place or, or regulatory uh, ownership, like you said. Yeah, I think we also have an opportunity for to get consumers to demand it. So consumers should be one of our greatest allies, and, and a lot of times they are, but we have to ask them to be our ally. Mm -hmm. And um, I think pharmacogenomics is, a, is an area where patients, consumers can have their uh, genetic profile done in the pharmacy, or at least um, a sample drawn in the pharmacy, and then come back to the pharmacy for an interpretation, and then for the pharmacist to act as kind of the healthcare quarterback to be able to share those findings with other healthcare providers, which will lead to other decisions, maybe some adjustments in their medication. Um, but I think that the pharmacy can act as a central hub for patients and, and getting patients on board with getting used to having, you know, going into the pharmacy to have their genetic profile looked at is, is something that we, can, that we can do, but we're going to have to proactively do it. Because again, there will always be others who will be more than happy to try to circumvent us. Yeah. And, the, and I think the tech, oh, sorry, Mike. No, no. I was going to say, I think the technologies are there. We see it in Ancestry.com. We're seeing it in 23andMe. We're seeing it in um, other, other companies that are, that are offering these services. So uh, as far as a community compound pharmacy goes, I, I would urge everyone to start looking at the education with respect to those testing sites, what, what information is available and, and whether or not you can start incorporating it. But education programs, I think this will be the next part uh, with pharmacogenomics, certainly for people who don't have that knowledge. So that's something that we could learn, certainly, and we could start bringing to the forefront. So I think it's a marriage made in heaven for community pharmacy, compounding, and pharmacogenomics. It's, and then at the end of it, it's a new revenue stream, which we could, in theory, 
develop a good reimbursement model for early enough. Yeah, and I think there's a real opportunity for compounding pharmacy in this realm as well, because many of the compounding pharmacists that I know are um, work closely with physicians, which makes sense because the physician is issuing the prescription to, for the customized medication. And with pharmacogenomics, you really need a partnership with a, a physician. So you, one of the challenges with pharmacogenomics right now is the liability that's associated with it. So let's just say you have the information, the pharmacogenetic information, and then you don't use it. Well, that's worse than, I think, perhaps worse than not having it in the first place. So once you have it, then you need to use it, and the physician needs to use it. So how do you have that, you know, incorporate um, that pharmacogenetic profile into your practice as a pharmacist, and then also with, with your physician? So I think there's some good physician education and some physician partnerships that can be had with, you know, the triad mm -hmm. of um, the pharmacist, the patient, and the physician. I think we're going to have to add a geneticist in there, so we're going to have a quadrangle. Yes. Like, fortunately, my brother's a, a genetic scientist, so I could probably pick his brain and learn something from him this time. Absolutely, <laughs> maybe he, he can lead the way. Oh man, you know it's amazing, Doug is, um, and you can see that you're a true visionary because we didn't even ask you the question of what your vision is of the future and, and where are we going in the next five years. You pretty much went right into that answer, um, and, and being the CEO of the organization. The expectation is that you do have to carry that, that responsibility of being that visionary. But part of the responsibility I'm assuming that you have as well is, is owning the mission of the organization and representing community pharmacies. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that compounding is broadly explained as no longer a niche, which, which I think is brilliant because it really is an extension of product and service. And we, no matter what we do, 27 episodes that I think we've recorded, Triad comes up at least once, no matter what. So um, I'm glad, glad to make it 28. <laughs> and you know what? And you said it. You didn't even have to bring it up. Um, but in terms of um, the mission of what your organization is, it has been created for and, and what it is in place for, what is the message to individuals who don't customize medications and, and that are part, they're community pharmacies, they, they have a responsibility uh, in their areas to the patients and physicians that they serve. Is there uh, a push in the direction of customizing medication or is it one of those things that still remains to be a choice um, down to the business level of whether or not people are truly engaged? Yeah, I mean, it's still a choice. I mean, that's one of the great things about being an independent pharmacist. You, do what you, is want. you, you get to choose which, you know, which things turn you on. I mean, and for a lot of folks, that the compounding aspect fits into our pharmacist brains and goes perfectly with the things we want to do. But it's not, you know, there's 21,000 plus independent pharmacies throughout the United States. It's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, compounding is certainly a business line that's important. About a third of all the uh, independent pharmacists in the country uh, compound or do some form of compounding. But even if it's not compounding, one of the visions or the vision that we have for pharmacy is that the product is still is key. The prescription product is key, but relying on a business model where the economic model is solely focused only on the dispensing of prescriptions is going to be a very, it already is a very, very tough road. Mm -hmm. And if we encourage our members to diversify their business, um, certainly through compounding, but through other, you know, whether it be long-term care, durable medical equipment, combinations, we know a lot of folks who do more than you know, just one, they'll do compounding and LTC, for example. That's a very common uh, combination. 
But we really see the pharmacists have to be part of the greater healthcare system. So when we look, right now pharmacy has been siloed off into, you know, here's my pharmacy budget and here's my medical budget. And that, that's killed us because it's been easy to really pick on that pharmacy budget just by ratcheting down our reimbursement. And it doesn't recognize all the other things that we do that are, are of value, and especially independent pharmacies. And we're recognized the same as an independent pharmacy as a chain drugstore. So it's like, you know, for a patient, they can go to a classy French restaurant or they can go to McDonald's and it's the same price. And that's the way it is for us. So we're at the classy French restaurant, the other folks are the McDonald's, and we're getting paid the same. And that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. um, by being part of the greater healthcare system, kind of breaking down that pharmacy silo, we, we, we don't have to, we can be paid appropriately for that classy French restaurant that I'm talking about. So we see what we're, in fact, we're helping to, to facilitate local networks of pharmacies. So right now there's over 2,300 uh, community pharmacists that have formed local networks, usually in their state, and those local networks are going to plan sponsors, the payers, and they're providing services that are of value to the, the payer. And that's a real mind shift for pharmacists too, because we've been taught in pharmacy school by our, our, um, by our professors who, you know, pharmacy schools are great, but a lot of times that perspective is pharmacists we're telling consumers what they should want. You know, you should want our diabetes service. You should want our respiratory services. Because we could save you a lot of money, we'd be great at it. Instead of listening to what does the consumer want and what does the payer want? What are the payer's pain points? And what we're finding out, the payer's pain points may be something as simple as, I have a hard time getting this prescription to my employee. And when that happens, I have to call Uber, Lyft, taxi, or the patient just doesn't get it and they show up in the emergency room. Man, I wish I knew a group of pharmacies that did home delivery. Oh, well, you know, there's 76% of all independent pharmacies provide home delivery and have for the last 50 years. But they don't know, the payer doesn't know it. So these local networks, that's, that's just one example. Mm -hmm. That's just one example where we can become part of the, the greater health ecosystem by providing solutions that make us invaluable and then allow us to say, you know, well, they provide delivery. I, I wouldn't carve them out of my prescription dispensing network. I want, you know, I want that pharmacy. I want Mike's Pharmacy in my, in my prescription dispensing network because they provide delivery. So quick question, and this is like breaking up the flow, but I guarantee you there's people like, how do I get involved in that? How do you get, how do people, uh, pharmacists who may be not in that network, how do they engage into it? Do you have resources available for them to, to, to find and discover? Yeah, they go to CPSN, C-P-E-S-N, and there's not dyslexia there as far as the sports network. It's C-P-E-S-N.com, and there are 47 local networks, and so there's a good chance that there is a network in their Again, it's usually states. Some big states have more than one. Like I think New York has three um, in their state. But um, they, they sign up. There's usually a luminary. So the luminary is, is usually a, a well-known pharmacist in the state who's usually on the cutting edge, who's dedicating, volunteering a ton of their time to help organize this network. And then the network gets support from CPESN. Um, and CPSN provides uh, some infrastructure support to help that local network uh, get, get stood up 
and get going. And then one of the key things is to, uh, to approach payers and to try to get those payer relationships because most of the payer relationships are local. Um, you know, we think about as a PBM kind of contract, those are national. But mm -hmm. most of the healthcare, most of the medical side um, relationships are, are local within a state or an area. And so getting those contacts with the payers and the local networks, we rely on people in the network who are um, networked to be able to get some of those payer leads. And then again, CPSN headquarters provide some support to help them uh, with those conversations with the payers and, and uh, structuring uh, payment contracts and service contracts. And, and like I, I'm, I'm looking at you going, I've never heard of this. I've never heard of that. And that's an amazing insight and value to, to anyone who's listening is, now how does NCPA fall in with those organizations? Obviously there's support and, 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 and help. Yes, so we help start CPSN. Um, so we're, we own 50% of CPSN. And the other group that started it is a group out of North Carolina, Community Care of North Carolina. And so CCNC, which is the North Carolina group, they've actually, we're pioneers in this. And so there's, a, I think, the largest network of pharmacies is in North Carolina, over 100, 150 or so, as I recall. And uh, they are the network for their Medicaid program. And so they've actually, again, North Carolina's really blazed a trail in, in this area to show payers that, hey, a group of pharmacies, group of pharmacists can help lower overall healthcare costs when they're part of the system versus, you know, kind of put off on the side in some silo. And so is there a membership fee to, to join this, that part, or with NCPA? Like, I, I, you know, this is, this is going to be one of the first questions. Sure. Um, there is a fee to CPSN. Uh, it's $83 or $85, it's $85 uh, a month. So that's less than a cell phone plan, but keep going. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's $85 a month. And part of the reason for that is because the other exciting thing about CPSN is that the, these groupings of pharmacies, the way we've structured it, it forms a clinically integrated network. Clinically integrated network, a CIN. And, and who cares, why does that matter? Well, that matters because clinically integrated networks are able to do, they're able to negotiate together. If they're, the key is that you're improving quality and lowering healthcare costs, and if you're doing those things, and some, there's some other things as well, but those are two of the keys, then you're able to negotiate together, which is the exact opposite of what we're able to do from a product standpoint. As independent business owners, we're absolutely forbidden to be able to collectively negotiate um, a, um, a prescription uh, contract. But on a service contract, we're able to come together. And part of that is that there is a fee, and also that part of that fee is used to continue to improve quality. So you know, about half of that fee goes to CPSN to continually improve quality, and the other half roughly goes to the, um, the local network to help with their uh, infrastructure. I, I, Mind-blowing. Like, I, I seriously have never heard of this. It's, and, I, and I just, I, it, it is brilliant. It's brilliant. It's it is, well, thank you. Um, it's the right thing for pharmacy. I mean, it's not something, I mean, we're a 50% owner. We're, you know, I have an MBA. Um, I'll pat you on the back, don't yeah. worry. Ah, this is awesome. No, the MBA side of my brain um, from an investment for NCPA, not a smart move. Um, but it's the right thing to do for, for membership. It's mm -hmm. the right thing to do to take pharmacy to the next level for that future. And so um, it's, 
the we mentioned how slow healthcare is. Mm -hmm. And so getting payer contracts, there's a long latency period for payers to change their current contracts. So that we're running, you know, that, that's an obstacle. And then it takes a while for payers to try something different because mm -hmm. they're somewhat used to this. They're not used to, they're, they're very used to the status quo. So it's, there is a long ramp up period but there's getting close to about 20 contracts that have been signed so far by the different networks. So now I'm gonna turn it back to the compounding world. Are, oh, we, sure. see, are we seeing compounders uh, get some of their services and their personalized medicine and some of that into those contract discussions? Are, are we seeing the benefit to, to, to literally our listenership? Absolutely, I mean, so that can be something, especially because of the unique products that compounders provide. I mean, let's just say it's BHRT. That maybe you know, it depends on the payer. The payer may say, you know, I've got um, a pain point for me is related to the lack of, of, of BHRT medications. I mean, that's probably be a unique payer, but um, so they could have a group of com of compounders provide that medication. A group of compounders in that local network. Mm -hmm. But there's a, there's many other you know, specific medications that compounders are providing. The ones that jump out are going to be uh, wound care, getting people back on their feet, getting them back to work. I'm going to say pain management medication, and then uh, right away, anything that's related to, to quality of life with respect to all of the GI patients. And I know that's always going to be a hot topic, and it's going to just only get bigger on its own world. But yeah, I can see those three being bigger with almost every payer that's out there. So right. I, I, I just, the vision the vision that you've already established, I'm like, now I'm getting excited about it, like, ooh, 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 ooh. So, especially in the compounding realm, I think that there's just a tremendous opportunity here if they're involved. Absolutely. I mean, compounding is so essential. Compounding, you know, one thing I, you know, PCCA doesn't pay me to say this, but I, I believe it. Um, you know, so I graduated in the early 90s and went through wet lab, and there was, a, you know, kind of a light wet lab for, for us and at the school I went to. And... Um, I really attribute the renaissance of compounding, because it was pretty much gone, you know, probably in the 70s, 80s. Um, but I really attribute the renaissance of compounding to, to PCCA. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm misinformed, but from my point of view, when compounding really wasn't that cool or in vogue, that's, you know, PCCA was, was banging the drum saying, this is something folks need to get interested in. And there have been a lot of others who have contributed to that growth of compounding over the last 25 years, 30 years. But I would say that the renaissance really started with PCCA. Again, that's not a paid commercial. That's, I really believe that. This guy's one step ahead. Yeah. Every single time I have a question, he just answers it and we don't have to say anything. That's why I'm just sitting here quietly. See, we, we should have we rehearsed this, right? No, and, we no, did, no. and this was unrehearsed. You yeah. know, totally. You're a completely busy man, and we, we managed to bring you on the podcast, and you're, you're answering through telekinesis, which is <laughs> yeah. the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. But no, honestly, Doug, uh, we, we do not pay you to say that. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much for chiming in. You, um, you also touched on something earlier on when we were recording, so keeping it focused towards our members, you are familiar with a lot of individuals that um, are, are very involved with the organization, and they happen to be members of PCCA. Uh, what are your takeaways about them and how they run their business? Well, about half of my, the NCPA board has nine, um, all pharmacy owners, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess I'm the 10th member, but uh, nine voting board members, and about half of them are 
you know, have a pretty big compounding business in addition to their traditional uh, retail. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love hanging out with compounders um, because they always have these amazing stories to tell about how they've helped a patient. And, you know, when you boil it down, you know, why are you a pharmacist? Why did we get into pharmacy? For most of us, it's because we want to help patients. And so you're talking to a compounding pharmacist, and he or she is saying, uh, you, you often have to draw it out of them, by the way, which is a weakness of pharmacy is that we're just too darn humble, um, and the opposition is more than willing to tell their story. But you draw it out of them, a compounding pharmacist, something they've done to change someone's life. And, and, it's, amazing, and it's just really heartwarming to hear those, to hear those stories. And so I, I, I really enjoy you know, just hanging out with compounding pharmacists just to hear yeah. what they did on Wednesday that probably saved somebody's life. And what a better place to do it than here at oh, our yeah. international <laughs> seminar in Houston, Texas. So you made your way here. This is not something new to you. Um, you, you obviously come very frequently. I can't say every year, but I'm assuming you try to come whenever you can. What does this event mean to you? Because you mentioned connection with these individuals who manage to change and to alter people's lives through through healthcare. So what does it mean to, to rub shoulders with a lot of your peers and to be present at an event like this? Yeah, no, I think I've been here every year since 2010. So I'm getting... I don't want to stick it on you. So I'm like, I'll let you yeah, answer it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I may have missed one year in there, but I don't remember if I did. So um, yeah, and, I, and what I like to do is I kind of lurk around in the halls a little bit or at the meal functions. I shouldn't reveal this on a podcast. But I'll just <laughs> Everyone's going to be looking for you after I know, this one. I know. Doug, he's lurking again. No, I kinda, but I'll, I'll, I'll show up at a table, and I, I kind of look around for tables of folks that I don't know. I intentionally try to sit at tables of folks that I don't know. And, and sometimes they recognize me, sometimes they don't. But just to, to kind of eavesdrop and, and participate in the conversation too and to hear what they're saying, what's going on in their lives. And, and usually it's about business. Sometimes it's not, and that's interesting too. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is the place to be, to be hearing about these amazing stories about changing people's lives. Mm -hmm. It gives you the chance to learn about their business and the challenges they face and what NCPA can honestly do. Because I'm, if I'm in your role, I want to know what these people are facing and, and at least be ahead of the curve. That's exactly right. I mean, so we want our finger on the pulse of what is going on in, with, with independent pharmacy. And that's one of the things I swore to myself, because I never really envisioned myself working at an association most of my career, but at this point... It turned out that way. It turned, it's pretty much that way. <laughs> at, at, at 20, 23 years into it, it's, it's pretty much shaping up that way. I never envisioned that at all, but I, I've, I swore to myself early on, because when I first... When I first came into DC, I was in some meetings with some folks who were like legends to me because I'd read about them in the trade press and I'm in a meeting with them. And it was really amazing. And until a few of them, I heard them talk and I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, what's really going on in the real world. And I swore to myself that, you know, that day that if I ever felt like I got disconnected from what's going on in the real world, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to do that. And so that is one reason I lurk around is to hear what people are saying, what's going on in their practices. Occasionally some clinical things too. I want to know, I don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, that to become a relic. But I want to know what's going on so we can take that back. And that, I try to bring that back to our entire organization so that they're listening to the members. Because if that, without the members, 
we don't need to exist. Well, if you have a formal process, people are going to be a little bit more filtered if they're talking to you in a, an official capacity. But if you're lurking about the table and you just engage them, and, and it kind of goes back to your original position. You're the pharmacist. You're just asking questions. Oh, I'm not supposed to ask that to the, to the president or the CEO. Well, they're, they're giving you unfiltered information. And it's, I would say it's incredibly valuable. And it's incredibly humble of you to take that approach because it really is that, that perspective of pharmacist to pharmacist to, to, to the meat of the issue. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, but it, you're right in that uh, it is unfiltered. And that's what I want. I mean, I don't want it the unfiltered rant. I mean, I can get that any time, but um, <laughs> just the unfiltered. You should come take some calls with me. You'll hear too. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's all no, good. Yeah, but uh, what's going on? You know, what, what's the hot spot? Um, you know, that, that's what I want to hear. And, and yeah, I, you know, we never want to lose that at NCPA. So just so you know, uh, Doug is five foot one. He's got a big bushy beard. He's got uh, brown eyes. And so if you see some stranger, just, just invite him over. Just, you know, we're throwing you off the trail here. Sebastian, you've blown my cover. <laughs> and once again, I'm the shortest one here. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I was actually going to say thank you so much for, for taking the time because I know you're, getting, you're pressed in a million different directions. Um, but also, realistically, uh, just thank you for being such, such an advocate for all of the pharmacists and the pharmacy practices out there that are independent, community-based, and that are, are really trying hard to service the needs of the patients. Like you, you're an excellent advocate. But I am going to ask, you mentioned that you worked in Colorado for about five hours, and I, I'm just, I'm desperately curious, why only five hours, and how did that leave such an impact that you remember it? Well, it is true. I, I guess I have to be careful what I say because people are actually listening here. Um, uh, yeah, I worked in Colorado. I was licensed there. I worked there for only five hours. Um, I, you know, this is in my single days, and I still love Colorado. I love to go hiking in the mountains and, and, um, but yeah, I, I worked for Walgreens for, for five hours um, uh, as, a, uh, as a trainee, as a pharmacist, pharmacist trainee. And I was, you know, again, young, single, and had, had worked, uh, finished my MBA, and was uh, going to live in Colorado and, you know, go hiking on every weekend and maybe grow a ponytail or something like that. Live and, the dream. I can see it already. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, the Walgreens thing after five hours, and it, and it wasn't... Um, you know, I th threw my spatula down and walked out. Um, my training session ended and I was like, you know, I don't think that's the right fit for me. Um, and so I, you know, I, I told the, the guy who had hired me that I won't be coming back. And he said, the cream always rises to the top. I remember him saying that and um, maybe it has. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, well wishes to those folks at the Walgreens in Colorado. Hope they're doing well. And uh, I don't know that they'd remember me for that five-hour stint 25 years ago. So if they do, best to them. <laughs> lesson to the audience. If it doesn't feel right in the first five hours, pull the plug. <laughs> it's a very important lesson to, to learn. Don't go through years of determination and, and trying to make a square peg fit in a round hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... Uh, I mean, I wasn't fired, but there's still, a, you know, hire slowly, fire quickly. Um, yeah. You know, same kind of from a, from a job applicant, maybe the same type of thing, too. But honestly, Doug, thank you for providing a very sincere, open view, not only for the vision of community pharmacies, but uh, talking about what your organization represents and the importance, I would say, also for PCC membership and what compounders do. 
it, it's really awesome to hear how connected you are and how involved you are with compounding pharmacists and understanding that it plays such a big part in community pharmacy. So I think that's what our podcast really is about. So you are definitely a natural fit to, to come on this podcast. We, we appreciate the time because we know that it's, it's precious. Yeah, Mike, can I say just one thing before sure. I go? And that is, you know, for the listeners out there, um, you know, we, we are proud to be advocates at NCPA. We're about 55 employees, um, which is, we're a medium-sized trade association. We get our power from, from you, the listener. That's, that's where we get our power. We're a megaphone, and, but you're the voice. Um, and so we need that voice. One thing I've really been talking about as the voice is to keep our message simple. We have a very technical, I mean, we're taught a very technical art. We have a very overly complex payment system that desperately needs to be changed. And when we try to explain that to people who can help us or people we want to get on our side, we lose them, I believe, within 25 seconds. Um, the attention span, some studies were done not too long ago that showed the attention span of a goldfish is longer than most humans. Um, and that's nine seconds. So I just appeal to folks listening to be an advocate. Help us be your advocate. Um, contribute to the advocacy conversation and keep your message simple. Keep it simple and that'll resonate the most. It's great advice. And thank you so much for sharing that. Mike, Sebastian, I appreciate being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Seb. Thank you, Doug. For all of our listeners out there, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, please reminder to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, obviously, if you had missed out on this year's international seminar, please visit pccainternationalseminar.com for more information about next year's event. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. This is Mike Felicia.